We love the fact, and we will be eternally grateful for that, that you have taken all of our sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. And you choose never to remember our sins against us. And yet, Father, beyond that, as grateful as we are for that, we long for something else. We long to be used by you. We want to be vessels of honor, useful for the Master, and fit to be used for his glory in every good work. And so, Father, would you teach us this morning how that could be possible in us, for me as a pastor and preacher, and for these, your people? Lord, what an impact that could be made on our families and on this community if we were to live as you call us to live in this world, to shine as a light in the midst of a dark place so that many would come to know you. Oh, Father, make it so for Jesus' sake and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, picking up where we left off last week in verse 23. I don't know about you, but I remember what it was like <clears throat> when I first believed. I remember how convicted I was over my life of sin and rebellion against God's law. I still recall the brokenness I experienced when the Holy Spirit began replacing my heart of stone and giving me instead a soft, malleable heart that is docile to the Spirit's leading and reshaping influences. I'll never forget what it, what it was like to be washed and justified, redeemed and reborn. It was like waking up from a long dream or being raised from the dead. And I know many of you share that experience. Some of you, perhaps it's not as clear, but just as real. God's superabounding grace comes upon all who believe, and sometimes like a flood, and I knew that I was not my own anymore. Truth be told, I, I didn't want to be my own anymore. I learned very quickly that the last thing I need is more of me, more of my thinking, more of my so-called wisdom. When I lived like my own master, I, I tend to ruin everything, but on that day, I eagerly surrendered my own autonomy and became willing to be a slave of Christ. After crying out forgiveness and saving grace, and a new motivating force gripped my soul. Now, I wanted to be a useful instrument in the Master's hands. I wanted to be useful to him. I wanted, to, I wanted him to take my life and to do whatever he pleased with me. I had no idea what that would look like. I had no idea the kind of wife he would eventually give me. I certainly had no idea he would give me seven children. And I definitely, definitely had no plans to be a preaching pastor. I just knew that the safest and happiest place in all the world to be found in this world is under the perfect leadership and direction of the master. If you're a true child of God by grace through faith, then you know what I'm talking about. You're eternally grateful for the fact that God has washed you and cleansed you from your sin and granted you the righteousness of Christ, but you want more. You want to not only belong to him, you want to be used by him. You want your life to count for him. Like in the Apostles' illustration of the household of God, you can totally see yourself as a vessel in that house. You have no qualms about being identified as a slave in the household of God. You don't care what he calls you, so long as you can be useful to him as he works in the world and draws sinners to himself. And as he finishes over the long, long term, building his church. I think this is what Paul is talking about in our text before us, both last week and this. He pictures a, 
A, a church, the church, the church, as a large house where there are various kinds of vessels, some like gold and silver are fit and honorable for his use. Others like wood and earthenware vessels are fit only for dishonorable use. And Paul wants Timothy to be a vessel for honorable use in the household of God. And this is especially true because Timothy is a pastor. There is a sense in which, in fact, the primary sense of this text, Paul is talking to Timothy specifically as a pastor. But this, almost all of this applies to every one of this. There's one exception here that I'll point out. But this is important for all of us. Uh, even when we look back at the qualifications in 1 Timothy and in Titus of what an elder should look like, don't misunderstand that. Don't think that those qualifications are only for elders, that somehow God holds elders to a higher standard of Christianity. No, it's just a description of what a mature Christian looks like. And so these things are something that you should aspire to as well. So in this passage, Paul insists that pastors and all believers should strive to become honorable vessels fit for the master's use. But what essential qualities make up such a man? And for that matter, what qualities should mark any Christian who desires to be useful as an instrument in the Redeemer's hands? In these verses, Paul identifies seven important qualities that mark a servant as an honorable and useful vessel to the master prepared for every good work. But before we dive into those seven, let's stand together and read the text for this morning. 2 Timothy 2, we're going to start with verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call, upon, call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Well, what are the seven qualities of a useful servant? Let's walk through them with the time that we have this morning. Number one, a useful servant, first of all, is serious about personal holiness. Now, I won't belabor this point because that was the entire message last week. He is serious about personal holiness. Suffice it to say, then, that an honorable and useful vessel is not necessarily one that is the most gifted of the vessels in the house, but rather, or not even the one who is most theologically educated, but rather the one that is pure. Have you ever gone to a buffet restaurant? I don't frequent them for good reason. But have you ever been to one and, and suddenly realized that the plate that you picked up to put your food on was dirty? Or have you ever been to a place where you ordered fresh coffee and they gave you fresh coffee, but when you picked up the cup, somebody else's lipstick was still on the edge of the cup? That's happened to me, I don't, I don't know why, many times. You just kind of hand it back. Listen, I, when I sit down to eat a meal or drink a cup of coffee, I don't care particularly what the, the plate or the dish or the cup is made of. And I don't care much about how artistic may be its design. The only thing I care about is, is it clean? And so it is with the master of the house. The honorable vessels that are useful to the master are clean vessels. 
Therefore, Paul says in verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel honorable for honorable use, set apart, or literally here, having been sanctified for the master of the house, ready for every good work. Having been sanctified is a reflection on the reality that when you are born again, God sets you apart from everybody else. He sets you apart from the world. You have been sanctified in the sense that you are now under his authority. You belong to him, and he will use you for special purposes. That is his intent. So how do you pursue holiness that the master requires. Well, verse 22, he says, so flee youthful passions, run from them, shun them, amputate them if you have to, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. I mentioned last week that call upon the Lord is a salvation term. Those who call, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we are struggling against the depravity of our own hearts, seeking to mortify the sin that keeps returning, you know, the best way to fight that is to do it with others who are also pursuing holiness in the Lord and coming to him with a pure heart. Notice Paul's repeated emphasis on holiness here. Chapter 2, verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from evil. Verse 22, flee youthful lusts, and 22 again, and do it with others who have a pure heart. Paul is really serious about purity. You want to be a youthful vessel? It starts with dealing with the issues of your heart. Sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. Address your heart. You should often be praying, search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Expose it. Help me to see it. Help me to repent of it. I took some delight this morning, at least some encouragement, as I was flipping through the Valley of Vision, you know, that little Puritan prayer book. And I ran into, and and they never tell you who the Puritan is who's writing, but as I was reading, I thought, wow, this guy, he knows my heart perfectly. He knows his own heart. Here was a Puritan pastor saying, Lord, I know you've saved me. Why is it that I have to struggle with sin every day, every day, every day? And yet your righteousness covers me. And so it should be for us. We shouldn't play fast and loose with sin. We shouldn't try to get as close as we can without crossing the line. If you're that close, you've already crossed it. So if you want to be an honorable vessel fit for the master's use, use, you have to be serious about purity. Number two, this person is not quarrelsome. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's bondservant or the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, now this is the third present active imperative. I told you last week that there are three. And whenever there's a present active imperative, it ought to pique your interest. You ought to be looking for it. I think I told you last week that I've got my computer software set up so that it highlights it everywhere in the New Testament in pink so I don't miss it. I don't miss pink on my manly computer, but it stands out. So the first one is flee. The second one is pursue, and now the third one is have nothing to do with, or perhaps a a better succinct translation would be refuse. So flee, pursue, and refuse. And what are we refusing? We're refusing foolish, ignorant controversies. This is one of those sins that is endemic to youth, and it's not exclusively for youth. Old men can fall back into childish ways. It tends to be one of those youthful passions Paul has warned us about. And I must say, as as I've said before from this pulpit, that young seminarians in particular are, are especially susceptible to sin. 
this sin. Often when a young man gets his first real taste of the rich treasures of Scripture, when he dives into the complexity of robust theology for the first time, he may discover that it tends to provoke within him an unhealthy, maybe even sinful appetite for foolish and ignorant controversies. Now, let me just point some words out here for you. Notice with me, the word for foolish here comes from moros. It is the word from which we get moron. The term ignorant means untrained or half-educated or stupid. The term controversies usually refers to debates or arguments, and the word breeds means to father, to beget, or to produce offspring. So here's what Paul's saying. These are very graphic and condemning terms. And when you put them all together, we have this. We have half-educated boys who know enough theology to be dangerous, who engage in moronic arguments that breed quarrels like feral hogs breed pigs. Not a flattering picture. But it's so easy. It's so easy to dive into foolish arguments that go nowhere and have no redemptive quality about it. And because you think you're arguing from the word of God, you have somehow sanctified your silliness, your stupidity. You've branded it as something good when in fact it's rejected by the, the apostle Paul and by the Lord. Back in chapter, uh, back in, earlier in this chapter, in verse 16, Paul commands that we avoid irreverent babble for it leads people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, this is something Paul comes back to again and again and again. All through 1 Timothy, now again, repeatedly in 2 Timothy, Paul's concerned about this. Listen, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't argue in the sense of helping one another discern the, the, the sense or the meaning of a text. Paul argues. Paul goes from text to text in the Old Testament, and he argues that it means this and not that. Praise God for men who have done that and got it right. But it's a slippery slope. You can very easily slip from sanctified discussion and helping one another understand the text of Scripture, arguing through the logic of it all. It's real easy to slip into sinful arguing. You become personal and begin attacking one another. Paul is saying, don't act like that. Flee such youthful passion. And instead, instead of becoming great at debating nonsense, do this. Strive to be great in being righteous. In other words, obedient. Strive to become great in practical faith, that is, trusting God's promises and his commands. Strive to become great in loving others as Christ has loved you. That's love. And number four, strive to become great at reconciling people and restoring them to peace with one another rather than dividing them by unnecessary foolish controversies. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. And as a side note, by the way, bondservant, there really is no such word in Greek it is slave, it's doulos, the slave of the Lord. And this term is usually a technical term for an elder or pastor. Paul uses it to refer to himself, slave of Christ. And so does Peter, and so does James, and so does Jude, and so does John. And notice that these previous qualities are negative in orientation, flee youthful lust, refuse ignorant controversies. But Paul is not telling us merely what to put off, like in all of his writings where he is teaching us how to change. We must also learn to put certain things on in their place. Your sanctification will abhor a vacuum. Your heart always abhors a vacuum. You can't just take off bad behavior. You must put on, by the process of sanctification, what is right 
and what is good in its place. And so the, the rest of these characteristics have a positive orientation. And Paul now tells us what to put on. So the third characteristic of an honorable and useful, useful vessel is, number three, that he is kind to everyone. That he is kind to everyone. And, and so you see how this relates to the previous one, right? Stop being argumentative. Stop trying to win the argument. Listen, you could win the argument and lose that person's soul. But rather, be kind. Be kind. Look at, look at verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. The conjunction but is an adversative calling for the opposite of being quarrelsome. Namely, what's the opposite of being quarrelsome? Well, one of the opposites is be kind. Be kind to, to who? To everyone. One of the characteristics of a godly man is that he's kind. He's not arrogant or rude. He's not pushing his own agenda. He's not arguing for his way. He's not easily angered. He's not easily frustrated. He's kind to everyone. Whether you're a pastor or a faithful Christian in the local church, the Lord is calling you to a spirit of gentleness with others. And by the way, that's a fruit of the Spirit. And I would argue that all of these are. And you, you probably remember me telling you that Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 22, is not an exhaustive list of the fruits of the Spirit. The Lord's slave is never a fighting man. He shouldn't have a reputation for asserting himself, his own opinions, his own agenda all the time. He shouldn't have a history of conflict, of frequent conflict. He shouldn't be known as the guy who always tends to be in the middle of the argument. He must be slow to anger. He must be quick to be silent. Part of the idea here is that serving the master means we represent the master accurately before others. We're not just doing what he has told us to do, but we are representing him in everything that we do. And what do we know about Jesus? If we're going to represent him well, then we need to know what he is like. And Jesus tells us what he's like. In fact, there's, in Matthew chapter 11, it's the only place I know where Jesus talks about his own heart. And Jesus himself declares this, Come to me, all of you who, are la uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what gentle people do. I don't mean wimpy people. We're not talking about wimpy men. We're talking about strong men who know the word of God, who can bring it to bear upon his own life and the lives of those in his household and in his church. And yet, when he does so, there's this air of gentleness. And it brings rest, not conflict. This is a reflection back on peace, right? The four things that he said we should be pursuing, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, we should be building peace in the church. And we do that with a humble heart and strong, unflagging doctrine. Now, if, your life, if your life ambition is to please Christ by representing Christ in the world, then we need to conform to his character. And what we learn from Matthew 11 is that Jesus is gentle and humble at heart. At this point in the message, I just want to encourage you to thank the Lord for the elders that he has placed in this church. And I'm speaking of the other five men, not myself. I'm personally grateful to God that I get to serve the body of Christ with such competent, wise, humble, gentle men. What a balance! What a balance. I'm not talking about one or two of them. I mean every one of these men. 
The Lord has used them and continues to use them as models of humble, shepherdly, gentle, competent leadership. And I confess, I need their influence in my life to teach me how to lead more gently and humbly as the Lord does. Unfortunately, too many pastors and leaders in the church are harsh and demanding and, and they have a controlling error, controlling manner about them. In fact, I have a dear friend, I may have already told you this, but I have a dear friend who, whose church of some 200, more, more than 200 people recently abandoned their pastor and the building because the pastor was so unyielding and controlling that when confronted with his sin, he chose to keep the building for himself and force the entire congregation to find a place to meet elsewhere. And he continues to meet with approximately 12 people Sunday after Sunday. Oh, may the Lord continue to protect Calvary Bible Church from such leadership. May he grant that those who are in leadership in this church and in Brent's church and in the church plant to come, faithful, gentle, competent, godly leaders. And that brings us to the fourth characteristic of an honorable vessel, and that is, number four, he is able to teach. Now, this is where we can explicitly see that Paul's primary target for this exhortation is Timothy, and the people, the other men that Timothy has to deal with in the local church who are leaders there. You remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul offers us a list of characteristics of qualified elders. That's probably because the elders, some of the elders were causing problems and were unfit to be elders. Like this list, most of the characteristics are moral. The elder pastor is to be above reproach in a number of key areas of his life, but there is one characteristic that involves a skill. Namely, the elder must be, I think the NAS says, apt to teach. We might just say able to teach. If he can't teach, he can be a godly leader. He can be a godly deacon. He can be, you know, a very influential person, but he shouldn't be an elder because the primary ministry of the elder it's the ministry of the word. He's got to be able to teach. Biblically qualified deacons, on the other hand, are not required by the scriptures to be skillful teachers. But elders and pastors are. Therefore, as we look for a man who will one day replace Keith in our midst, we're not just looking for a humble man, although he must be that, he must not only be a godly man, although he must be that. He must also be an excellent teacher. If you're a pastor elder, if you're not a pastor elder in a local church, then you are not required to carry this burden. Nevertheless, I would say that for the sake of your wife and children, you should strive to know the Word of God well enough that you can lead in helping your family understand what the Word of God means by what it says, and to practice discernment enough and be proficient to keep your family on the right path biblically and theologically. I, I know some men who are gifted, godly, gentle men, but who are not gifted to teach, but they can smell error from a hundred miles away. And they're very careful with their family. And sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, this came up uh, among my family. And I told them that was wrong. Help me understand why. But their senses are trained to know the difference between good and evil. They just don't know how to formulate it in a way that can communicate. And it's not natural for them. Now, the fifth characteristic of an honorable, useful vessel is this. Number five, he is patient when wronged. The ESV says, patiently enduring evil. If you've ever, ever led any group of people for practically any purpose at all, then you probably have learned to lead, that to lead is to become the target of opposition and the target of attack. And this was certainly true in Timothy's case, but 
And especially and repeatedly, Paul charged Timothy to confront false teachers and forceful women and passive men in the church. And he would become a target for their opposition. And while that may be what faithfulness requires, it is sure to make enemies of yourself as you do. Once again, we're called not only to serve Christ in the world, but to represent him in the world. People observe how we respond to being mistreated. They may not say it, but they see it and they hear it. As Christians, we are to respond to unjust treatment the way Jesus did. And how did Jesus respond to unjust treatment? Can we just take a minute to flip to the right a little bit and go to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is largely about suffering and suffering in a way that you don't deserve. And how do you respond to that? This may be in your home, or this may be in the workplace, or this may be in your church. I guarantee it's, it's going to happen in all of the spheres that you happen to live in. But listen to this. Do you realize that Jesus is our example for how to respond to unjust treatment? Chapter 2, verse 19. Here's what we read. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrow and suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What does he mean? To this, meaning suffering well. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And what were his steps like? Well, watch this, verse 22. He committed no sin. Can you say that? I mean, at some level, our suffering is deserved. But he committed no sin. He never deserved any mistreatment. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Can you say that? Never lied. Jesus never lied. And yet he was mistreated. Verse 23. When he was reviled, however, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Every time you choose not to lash out in return, you are sacrificing. There's no way to do it without sacrifice. There's no way to forgive without sacrifice. Jesus is our example. He bore our sins. That doesn't mean you don't seek reconciliation. It doesn't mean that you don't pursue forgiveness. What it does mean is when the other person is unwilling, then you must follow the example of Christ, who when reviled did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. God will settle all accounts and he will settle them better than we. How do you respond to unjust criticism and mistreatment reveals a lot about your faith. It says something about our maturity in Christ. It perhaps exposes a certain pride and a need for honor and respect that is contrary to our claim to be nothing more than slaves of the master. And slaves don't have the right to demand honor. He is our model for how to respond to suffering. He was Lord. He is Lord. He is the King. And yet he didn't protest. Pilate was amazed that Jesus said nothing in the midst of all of the beating and false accusations. And he did it just as Isaiah predicted he would, like a lamb being led to slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. 
He's our model for how to respond to suffering. We represent him well in this world when we respond to unjust treatment by patiently enduring it without sinning in return and by entrusting ourselves to him who judges rightly. By the way, I'd like to refer back, sometimes I have to refer my own heart back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is dealing with conflict in the church. They were going to, to worldly courts to settle issues in the church. And Paul said, remember what Paul's question was? Why not rather be wronged? <laughs> Why not just let them get away with it for Christ's sake? Why not rather be wronged? There's something bigger, there's something at stake here that is infinitely greater than you getting your pound of flesh or your apology or hearing the other person say, I was wrong. You are not the judge of all the earth. Why not rather be wronged? As I find myself quoting Frank Shannon a lot. <laughs> I remember him telling me uh, as a young pastor, uh, son, sometimes you just need to hunker down like a mule in a hailstorm and just take it. <laughs> you do. Why not rather be wronged for the sake of Christ, for the sake of testimony? That's what Jesus did. Talk about a hailstorm. He was beaten. He was flogged almost to death. A crown of thorns, nails in his feet and hands. And yet he did not open his mouth except to say, what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The sixth characteristic of an honorable, useful servant is he offers gentle correction. Paul's words are, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now we need to be careful here not to conflate the command to be gentle with a mandate to never confront. That is false. Just because we're commanded to be gentle does not mean that we don't confront. It's just that we confront with gentleness. Jesus confronted many people, and he is the standard of gentleness. When there is willful sin, it must be confronted. Even when it's not premeditated. It often needs to be confronted. In Galatians 6, Paul instructs as follows, Brothers, if any, anyone is caught in any transgression that is a real sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? In a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. You're never more tempted to sin than when you're being falsely accused or when you're trying to deal with another person's sin. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I think sometimes when we confront a person, our, our thinking is, I'm going to confront him, he's going to respond. If he doesn't respond, I'm done with him. And here Paul is saying, no, 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 confront him, be gentle, and be ready to bear his burdens. You're going to have to bear with him. You're going to have to be, here's another way to say it, forbearing. It may take time. You're going to have to be patient, you're going to have to be gentle, and you're going to have to keep confronting. We talk about church discipline, and people will ask me from time to time, how often have you done church discipline? And I respond by saying, how many weeks in the year are there? Because we're always confronting one another with sin. And I don't mean that we're, we're going through some process. We're just helping people. I mean, probably today at Calvary Bible Church, somebody will come to someone else and say, either please forgive me for I sinned against you. Or, hey, uh, can I ask you a question about what I heard you just say or what I think I saw you do? 
Obviously, we have to be careful with that. But that's what Paul's saying. Be careful. Be gentle. Be kind. Be gracious. Bear with one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a fearful thing to confront one of your peers on a sin. Whenever I've had to perform that unsavory duty, I try to remember Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. You know why that verse exists in the Bible? It's because we are more comfortable flattering with the tongue regarding the person you're standing in front of who needs to be confronted and you're unwilling to confront them because it's uncomfortable. And something may happen. Whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Listen, it takes a strong person to talk to another person about their sin and to do it with gentleness, without condemnation, reminding them of the gospel. Again, this is what Jesus does for us, doesn't he? One of the evidences that he loves us is that he doesn't let us get away with our sin Raising our children when they were little, we would say this almost every day as we're disciplining them. Son, this is evidence of God's grace to you. God is being gracious to you. I know it doesn't feel like it, but, but consider this. He is not allowing you to continue in your sin. That's grace. That's grace. He confronts us directly, but with gentleness. Why? Because his goal is not punishment, his goal is restoration. His goal might be salvation. And that brings us to the final characteristic of a vessel of honor that's useful to the master. Number seven, he is motivated to rescue. Motivated to rescue. Look at verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There are always those who oppose the faithful teaching of the word, whether it has to do with the nature of justification or the nature of the atonement or the means of sanctification, whether it has to do with apostolic teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or the roles, um, gender roles in the church and home. There will always be opponents. There will always be people who stand strongly against you. And such people need to be confronted. But the goal of that confrontation should always be restoration. It should always be peace. And not only reconciliation with you, but perhaps with other people and most certainly with God. And that burden becomes a little lighter when we remind ourselves that only God can grant repentance. That's what he says, right? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps, what's the next words? Grant them repentance. That's the only way anybody gets repentance. You say, I've never thought of repentance as something I get. I thought it was something I do. Well, eventually you do it, but first you get it. It is a grace to you. Even that is from God. The humility to push yourself down, to hold yourself under, as it were, to consider the other person more important than yourself, and to consider the church and the church's well-being more important than yourself. Only God can grant repentance, and he may use you to bring that repentance. Listen to how he says it. Uh, correcting the, his, his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Why, why are you confronting that guy? It's because I love him. You know what? If nobody confronts him, there's no hope. But my hope is that I, if I confront him, God may grant him repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Not a promise. But if he does it, he's probably going to do it through someone. And I hope it'll be through me. I have found 
found it helpful to remember that. Um, and then notice, um, God is granting repentance. That sometimes tells us that the person that I am confronting is not merely in error, but they have also been ensnared by the devil. You know, when I'm counseling people, three things are true if they came in claiming to be a believer. I know they're, I know they're a saint. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. I know they're a sinner. But I also know they're a sufferer. And that's even true for people whose doctrine is in error or who are promoting something that is untrue in the local church. They're not just a sinner. They're also a sufferer. They have been ensnared to some degree by the devil. They have been captured by him to do his will. The term come to their senses here is a sobriety term. It's as if the devil has intoxicated them with some life-dominating sin and they need someone to come and restore them to sobriety again. It's also a term used for sleepiness. You're asleep. It's like you're under the devil's anesthesia and you need, they need someone to come and take the mask off and shake them and, and help them wake up. And unfortunately, so often they're unwilling to be awakened. I, th I think of Pilgrim's Progress when he's walking the road and he comes to those three men who are asleep at the tree and he keeps telling them, wake up, wake up, wake up. You're in danger, you're in danger, you're in danger. And they shoo him away because they're put out that he's waking them from their sleep. It's our job to try to wake them, to do it gently, to do it courageously, but it is no act of love to let them lay in danger. And by the way, this is not the first time Paul has used this analogy of being ensnared by the devil. 1 Timothy 3.7, he warned that an elder must, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. In this case, the man in question is intoxicated by his own high opinion of himself, his abilities, his wisdom. He needs someone to bring him back to the humility of a servant. You are not the ruler of this church. You are the chief servant who should see yourself as the chief of sinners. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into, into temptation, into a, what's the next word? A snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul is saying such people need to be confronted, but we must do it with an attitude of gentleness. We must come to such a person and say, brother, <laughs> the love of money seems to have gripped you. We need to bring them under the ministry of the Word and by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just as a practical statement of how to do that, uh, as we're discipling others to do that, I always teach them this phrase to help them. And here it is. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Listen, I can guarantee every single time you go into this kind of circumstance with accusation, you have a fight on your hands. And you will probably have lost it from your first statement, your first accusation. It's done. It's done. Trying to redeem that now is going to be really, really hard. Go in asking questions. Give them an opportunity to say what's true. It may not be what you thought it was. Give them the opportunity to explain that. It may not be as bad as you thought it was. Or it might be exactly what you saw or thought you heard. And they'll be so grateful to you for pointing it out. On the other hand, they may hate your guts. But then you need to entrust them, trust all of that to the one who judges righteously. So Paul insists that pastors and all believers strive to become honorable vessels for the master's use. And how do we do that? Well, we build the following characteristics into our lives. 
We pursue personal holiness. We refuse to quarrel. We're kind with everyone. We're able to teach. God has called us to that. He's patient when wronged. He offers gentle correction. And he's motivated by the prospect of rescue or restoration. Now let me just say one final thing here. If you don't know the Lord this morning, please don't misunderstand. This is not a path to salvation. No one comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ by working these kinds of characteristics into their lives. God is not impressed, and you can't do it without him. I love that story of Ben Franklin, who determined that he would put himself on a schedule of building civility into his life. Certain moral characteristics in his plan was to build the first one. And then when he got that going, he'd start on the second one. And at the end of the experiment, well, before it was due to end, long before it was due to end, he gave up on it and said, I could no sooner get the first one going and start on the second one when the first one started falling apart. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's what the law of God is designed to expose. You can't justify yourself into heaven. You have to understand that the only thing you have to offer God is not your holiness, not your lack of quarreling, not your kindness and gentleness, not your ability to teach, not your desire to correct other people. None of these things will get you to heaven. The only thing you have to offer God is your sin. And if you come to him with nothing in your hands but your sin and a confession that all of your righteousness is but filthy rags, it's not about you accepting him, and he will accept you. Based on his righteous life and atoning sacrificial death, and so I call upon you to consider your own heart. Do you know him? Have you come to him on his terms? If you haven't, then perhaps today is your day. Cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. On the basis of the righteous life and atoning death of Jesus Christ, save me. Take my life and use me as you please. Father, we thank you for this text and for the reminders. Very briefly, seeing these reminders of the way we're supposed to live, not to earn salvation, but rather to represent Christ well in the world. And we long, Father, not only to see you face to face and experience the fullness of our redemption in Christ one day in heaven, we also long, Father, to be used by you on earth to draw others to yourself, to minister, to serve, to comfort, to counsel, to heal, to teach, to do whatever the moment requires to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Oh, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving that you even desire to use the likes of us. You could have done it by yourself. You could do it through angels if you pleased. And yet you choose to build your church through unworthy creatures such as us. We are humbled by that. And we are driven to worship you in adoration and praise and joy because of it. And so we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus.